You're listening to the Hoping in God's Future sermon series at Sojourn East. Whether in times of peace or calamity, security or uncertainty, God invites His people to look to Him with hope because He is both sovereign and good. Today's scripture comes from Romans 8, 16 through 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, friends. It's good to be back with you this week. You know, Christianity and our faith is actually very weird. It's odd. It's unexpected. The Bible teaches a lot of things that at first seem to make no sense, that are so counterintuitive, that seem to be the opposite of how we are wired, opposite of our natural inclinations. For example, Christianity teaches that if we want to have a good life, then we shouldn't just look out for ourselves grabbing the spotlight always and and getting the best seat and the largest stake and the largest house for ourselves. But Jesus says we should actually consider others more important than ourselves and look to God to meet our needs. Christianity teaches that if we want to be happy, That when people misrepresent us or slander us, we shouldn't respond in anger or just crumple in devastation, and we shouldn't take out our own revenge, seeking to destroy and attack and harm back. Christianity teaches that if we want to know true joy, that we need to give our life energy to things that aren't always glamorous, things that don't seem joyful, don't seem exciting, like changing diapers and Maybe patiently helping a daughter with a report on Romeo and Juliet, something I failed desperately at this week. Maybe foregoing some golf so that you can spend more time with your son. Maybe remaining faithful to a husband who isn't very affectionate or has hurt you so badly that you feel numb. Maybe it means caring for a grouchy old father-in-law whose mind and body are decaying and now you're stuck caring for him like a baby. The Christian faith, the Bible says that these counterintuitive ways of living our lives are actually good and beautiful and where true life is to be found, even though they seem so unnatural and counterintuitive to us. That's the weirdness of the Christian faith. Now, those of us who have lived for some time as Christians, we actually know these things are true. We have tasted some of this counterintuitive truth and found it to be real. We've 
we've known a little bit of the truth that these unnatural ways are actually life-giving to us. And so we live by faith, but God does bless us and give us little glimpses of goodness, little cups of refreshing water to, to keep us on the way of Jesus. But I do think there is one thing that Christianity teaches that is the oddest and most shocking and really the most difficult to actually embrace. The, the most difficult and oddest thing to take into our mouths and to swallow it and to be nourished by it. And that's the Bible's teaching that Christians, we who are supposedly the ones blessed by God, we will actually suffer and suffer a lot. That is, if you think about how odd this is, the Bible teaches that Christians are the humans that have been united with Christ, that we are anointed and actually filled with God's own spirit, that we are new creation creatures who have power and freedom and joy, even spiritual gifts, and that the favor and peace of the God of the universe rests upon us, anyone who's a believer in Jesus, and that we're loved and known by God. All these things the Bible says, we're the true children of God. We are inheritors of all of his blessings and we will suffer. That's an odd thing to combine together. In fact, if you and I were making up a religion, I think we could find a ton of amazing things straight from the Bible. All those things I just said, these blessings and power and being children. But I think if we were making up a religion, we would cut out that most shocking and unexpected thing that the Bible teaches that we are to suffer. It just seems wrong. Whether it's Jesus talking about following his example of taking up our crosses of suffering, whether it's Jesus teaching the Beatitudes of turning the other cheek and being slandered for the name of Christ, whether it's Paul speaking about having a thorn in the flesh that God used to strengthen him in weakness, or whether it's Paul describing all his imprisonments, his beatings, his floggings, the ridicule he endured, whether it's Peter talking in his letters that we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter fiery trials, or James reflecting on how suffering is necessary to produce character in us, or the author of Hebrews even going so far to say, that Jesus himself learned obedience through what he suffered. All over the Bible, the testimony about the Christian life is that it includes brokenness and suffering in the world and maybe especially for Christians. You know this is true. You've seen it in your own life and maybe you're seeing it more than ever right now. Life involves a lot of suffering and affliction, and being a Christian, a blessed Christian, even that doesn't make all this suffering go away. Wow. Okay. Thanks, Pastor Jonathan. Debbie Downer, jerk. I thought this was supposed to be a series of sermons on hope. Well, it is, friends, and this is where our wonderful section from Romans chapter 8 enters in. In fact, there's so much goodness and beauty in this section of Romans that I wish I had more than two eyes to see it and more than one mouth to speak it. But I want to just take a few minutes today and walk through with you what God is saying to us from Romans chapter 8. You've heard it read. Let me now look at it with you again, starting again in verse 18. Paul says, I consider 
that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So here we are jumping right into the middle, really, of one of the most delicious and beautiful chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And, and the verses that come before verse 18 are well worth reading. I'd encourage you to go this afternoon or sometime and read them. And they're talking about how God has given to Christians his own spirit to dwell in us, to actually empower us to do God's will perfectly. And that makes us alive instead of dead. And he teaches that we are God's children. We are now heirs of his promise and blessings. And it says, right before we get to our passage for today, that like Jesus also, we will suffer. But here is where the hope comes in. Paul sees clearly what you and I need to see as well, that whatever our sufferings are in this earthly life, they are small. They are insignificant. They're, in fact, they're so small, so temporary compared to the glory, the goodness, the freedom, the joy, the fullness that is going to be coming to us that they are not even worthy to be compared. Paul is using really something like an accounting metaphor here. He's reckoning or, or calculating the balance sheet of how to value things. Our sufferings and trials and pains are real, and they're on one side of the ledger. And, and you have to notice this, that, that Paul's not denying the reality of our sufferings. This is not Buddhism. Christianity does not say that the key to happiness is that you have to realize nothing is real and you just need to be free from it. This is not that at all. These tears, these fears are real. But what Christianity offers us is this thoughtful consideration that these very real sufferings and pains, when they are lined up on the ledger sheet next to the goodness and the beauty and the glory and the joy that is surely coming to us in Christ Jesus, that the comparison is not even worth making. It's a ridiculous comparison. So it's think of it this way. It's kind of like maybe... If you think about when you were a child and you had to take piano lessons, if you had to, all the annoyance and the pain and the boredom, the inconvenience of that, once, if you stuck with it, which I did not, but if you stuck it with it, like my daughter Mandy, who plays, stuck with it and played, the ability to, to play fluidly and beautifully, if you were to look back and say all those hours of, of pain and inconvenience as a child, they're not even worth comparing to the ability that you have now to play beautiful music. Or like all the pain maybe of, of weightlifting and cardio training and diet restrictions and sleep requirements that an athlete puts themselves through so that they might someday stand on the Olympic gold medal platform for the marathon, or in my case, it'd be badminton, or the joy of playing and hitting that buzzer beater jump shot of U of L over UK or UK over U of L, whichever one doesn't make you mad. In either situation, the, the, the pain and the labor beforehand isn't even worth it compared to the beauty and goodness of being able to play and to enjoy the game. Or we can come up with a million other examples. In, in the joy of maturity, of fullness, of entering into to something good and beautiful, and in the Bible's case, into the reality of the glory that is coming, all that pain is really considered nothing. It's not even worth mentioning or even better, not worth comparing. This is what Paul is saying, that all the suffering of our life is real, but from a future perspective is not even worth to compare. 
Now, Paul actually talks this way in other places as well. For example, in 2 Corinthians. There, Paul is again talking about all the sufferings and trials and pains of this life. And he's comparing it to the glory and goodness and beauty that will come to those who believe. And, and you know, this is such a, a paradoxical, beautiful truth in the Bible that you need a bunch of different metaphors for it. In Romans 8, he uses this kind of accounting metaphor. In 2 Corinthians, he uses like this idea of weights instead. Listen to these verses from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, that is the sure power of the Christian hope. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to unpack this, to explain, to actually help us envision why that crazy statement of this not being worthy of compared, why that is actually true. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Let me ask you a question. Before I read those verses, if I were to ask you this question, I wonder, I wonder what your answer would be. Here's the question. What does God think about the creation not humanity, but the world, nature, the earth. What's God think about that? And what is, the, what is the future of the creation? What's going to happen to God's creation in the future? I'm afraid that maybe before reading those verses and maybe even after them, some of us might give less than biblical answers. For example, I'm afraid that some of us might say, you know, creation doesn't really matter. Only humans do. Creation is just a, a tool for us to use. And maybe we also might say, and what's going to happen to creation? Well, it's just going to burn up. It's all going to be gone. But these verses, along with a lot of others in the Bible, show that God's created world is good and beautiful. God's created world is not just a, a background setting, a disposable movie set for the film starring humanity. Rather, the whole world itself, creation, not just humanity, including humanity, but not just humanity, the whole world is frustrated, it's decaying, it feels its own futility because it's under a curse. The whole creation itself has been affected by the fall, and note from Genesis 3, 17 and 19, humanity caused this curse to come upon it, but creation experiences futility because it cannot fulfill the purpose for which it was made. God made creation to flourish, to grow, to thrive. And God's creation is still so innately powerful that even despite the curse, things do grow. Things, birth does happen. And yet it's always a struggle. It's always a fight. And there's still lots of death and frustration and perversion and brokenness in the natural world. But here's the beautiful key, that creation's destiny is not destruction. 
It is not a disposable part of God's reality, but it itself is going to be redeemed. The creation itself, not just us, is suffering now, but it is going to be liberated. It is going to be freed from weeds and viruses and tsunamis and redness and tooth and claw and cancers and poisons and molds and decay. Creation is going to become a new creation is what Paul is saying and what the Bible teaches. It's not going to be burned up. It's going to be cleansed by fire, but it's going to be made new. Now look at how he concludes what he's saying in verses 22 to 25. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For it's in this hope that we were saved, but but hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul is again saying, The entirety of creation is groaning in pain. And Paul's not making this up. This is just his idea. This is something you see all throughout the Bible. For example, in Isaiah 65 and 66 and lots of other Jewish literature as well. And Paul, to describe this, he uses the analogy of the pain of childbirth. Now, it's always a little dangerous. And man, if you don't know this, here's your public service announcement. It's always a little dangerous for a man to use the analogy of the pain of childbirth. Don't try this at home. In fact, maybe you've seen the YouTube videos of guys who are hooked up to machines so they can experience contractions and they're all weeping like babies. I'm sure I would as well. So be careful, man, when you use this analogy. But it actually is a perfect analogy for Paul to use because, think with me, what else in human experience, I can't think of anything, that combines excruciating pain with great joy that follows. Excruciating pain with great joy. Pain that is almost unbearable, from what I believe and understand, that results in actually a new, eternal human being. There's nothing else that describes that combination. You see, it's not just pain for its own sake that ends. It is actually pain that results in something. And, and the fact that it is, this is a reality is, is shown by the fact that many women have a second child. <laughs> that somehow, despite the worst pain they can experience, there is still joy on the other side because it's worth it. And then in verse 23, Paul says that this analogy applies not only to creation, but to humans ourselves. That we who are Christians, we actually have the Holy Spirit living in us. And so we actually experience the same kind of life pain that the creation does. The frustration, the futility, the tears, the sharp pains, the prolonged contractions that often bring us to the very breaking point as humans. And this again is where the analogy of the childbirth pain is so important because, again, it's not just pain that ends and then is forgotten, like many pains. It's a special kind of pain that is actually forward-looking. It is a groaning pain and a longing. It's not just pain, but it's a pain that includes a longing for what is to come. And then Paul, who has just used this childbirth analogy, now he slightly shifts the metaphor to refer 
to adoption, to going from being not a child of God to becoming heirs, to to being children who receive all the legal and real life benefits of entering the best family in the world, God's own. And friends, all of this together is the great Christian hope. We are God's children now, but we're also awaiting full adoption. The day and moment when we will be transferred from one place to another, from brokenness and poverty and need and loneliness to wholeness and riches and satisfaction and love. We are all, friends, December 24th children. If you remember what it was like as a child on December 24th, that that pain longing that you know the reality is coming, but you do not yet have it. We are all, friends, pre-night, pre-wedding night brides and grooms with the longing and the desire, but it has not yet happened. We need to learn to recognize that all of our frustrations, all of our griefs, our sadness, our laments, our disappointments, the injustices done against us are actually evidences of our real state, that we are eternal creatures who are living in a decaying world, that we are pre-adopted sons and daughters who are longing for our father, that we are a bride awaiting the wedding. And it is precisely our status as spirit-filled children of God that makes our pain and longing so profound. This is what it means to be a Christian, to live in this kind of certain future hope. We don't have yet what we will have. We can't see with our eyes yet the glory and beauty and redemption of the whole world, including our own bodies that will be free of cancers and free and relationships free of wounds and a world that is free from decay. But to believe in God is precisely to believe and to hope that this reality is true. And the key, Paul says in verse 25, to living in the midst of suffering and trials is from this truth to learn patience, to actually learn to lean in to our December 24th reality, because it can actually be a paradoxical delight, a kind of pleasure longing, not just a pain longing, when we consider, when we reckon, when we account that, of all, that all of the negativity, all the trials, all the disappointments will not even be worth compared to Christ's redemption of the world. And so if we can learn to lean into that with that kind of reasoning at the heart level, not just in the mind, at the heart level, that it's not even worthy to be compared, we can learn to have the patience that is faith and hope. So friends, how, how do you find the strength to actually keep patiently helping your kids with school or to be kind to those who are unkind to you? How do you find the strength to continue to be faithful to your spouse? How do you find the strength to do what is right at work or to have the energy to keep looking for a job? How do you find the strength to, to sacrifice your time and money by pouring yourself out for others rather than just hoarding it in fear? How do you find the strength maybe for you today to, to just keep breathing, to just keep living and loving when you've just lost your job? 
when your hopes and plans and desires have just been ripped from your hand for no fault of your own, but because of this accursed virus and its effects? The answer, not tritely, but deeply, is by hoping in God's certain future. By believing, even with mustard seed faith, that in God's accounting ledger of comparison of suffering to glory, that God is right. That by setting our hope on something weightier, more glorious, something deeper, more solid, more real, more lasting, more beautiful, more life-giving, more true than this temporary and fleeting life by, by putting our hope in that, that our present momentary light afflictions, they're not even worth comparing to the glorious redemption of the entire world, including us. So when you feel blindly and blind by the pain and the fear of what you're facing, and maybe you feel numb and you feel angry and you feel paralyzed, at these moments, it's good to have some handholds on the rock face of life. And God is offering us this morning, friends, one of the many handholds, or maybe better, a rope in the midst of a storm. And that is this, that if you are one who believes in Jesus, that he came into the world, that he died and rose, that he ascended to the Father to make a new covenant with all people, that you have died and you are hidden with Christ in God, that this is the guarantee that all these difficulties and trials and sufferings will be swallowed up in complete and perfect glory. The future redemption or salvation of the world is going to engulf the entire universe and swallow up all your pain, all your loss, all your disappointment, and we will in that moment, with tears streaming down our faces, look at each other in the eye and say, everything sad is coming untrue. It's not a quick fix or a magical spell that eliminates all of our suffering or anxiety, but it is a reminder this morning and today of a reality, a reorientation to the core and goal of the Christian faith, which is our hope. So brothers and sisters, friends, live and be strong in the sure hope today. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.